0: Hello, and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. This podcast series will feature selected sessions from the fifth international workshop on CAR-T, which was held in Scottsdale, Arizona. In this session, you will hear from John Gribben, Joseph Mellenhorst, and Tanya Siddiqui, who discuss challenges with implementing CAR-T therapy in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, the potential role of combination approaches and ongoing trials in this space.
1: I'm uh, John Gribbin from Barts in London and we're here at the fifth IW CAR T meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona and we've just completed the CLL session. Um, I'm joined here by Joe Mellenhorst who's now at Cleveland, of course previously at Penn, Tanya Siddiqui at City of Hope who's of course led the Transcend studies we're going to talk about in just a moment. now. Of course, we talked about that CLL was the very first disease in adults that we saw successes from CAR T. You're probably that CAR at yeah. care of a pen at the time, right? And, and the success and some of the things we've seen. But yet, despite that, we still don't have an approved product. Um, and having seen some of the data we're going to go through in just a moment, does seem almost surprising that we haven't been able to do it, but Mm. there are some intrinsic um, issues related to CLL and and most of us of course know, and of course it's been a big focus of my lab for many years, a large problem has been the intrinsic T-cell defects that occur within uh, CLL. And Joe, you started to really talk in your talk about how we can start thinking about that challenge in terms of how we can look to overcome it. Mm
2: Right, it's absolutely true. Um, so the, the T cells in most patients, as you say, it's dysfunctional. There it might be a subset that's specific for, say, C and B virus that has retained some of the functionality. But that's a really big challenge. So how do you figure out how to do the next better uh, therapies? We, we've discovered a subset that we think is most important precursor cell. We can augment that. We can select it. There's ways of doing that. But those are combination therapies that could actually help us and, and enhance the overall uh, therapeutic efficacy of CART-19 therapies. Now, it,
1: it, We heard from some of the audience, in some of the terms of the questions even, this almost intrinsic bias in the, oh, CAR T cells don't work in CLL. Mm-hmm. But of course, we just had a whole session where people are so excited about CAR T's in myeloma, where the results in CLL look just every bit as good, mm-hmm. if not better. So why are we not, as excited in CLL as the myeloma field, I guess because they've got approved products and we don't. But why do you think there is this inbuilt bias in, in terms of? I guess you could say that the field did go backwards a little bit a little in the bit, middle.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I think in lymphoma because there's so many different types of lymphomas, and we have the more aggressive, more immediately life-threatening lymphomas compared to CLL, which is considered to be a you know, cure, chronic, incurable disease. People can stay on pills forever. Where's the need mm-hmm. to kind of come up with a CAR-T, et cetera, et cetera, except now we're starting to see those patients who are progressing on BTK inhibitors and venetoclax, and we really have nothing to offer them in, in the real world, so CAR T cells are now emerging as, okay, more exciting again, and can we can we offer patients um, a time-off treatment with this one-time sort of bolus of CAR T cells, and can they go many years without needing to be on continuous pills and things like that? So I, I think it's the nature of the disease. Myeloma is also more aggressive in a sense you can't just leave it alone forever, Where and same as DLBCL and mantle cell lymphoma, et cetera, where CLL is sort of, okay, some people need treatment sometimes, and sometimes they don't. So it, I think that's why it's taken a bit of a back seat. CAR T cells have in, in CLL so far.
1: Now, course I mean, there are two big groups who've been, continued the focus on, you know, there's the group at Penn with uh, with, with a modified um, uh, uh, product, not the Kim Raya product as we heard SAR present. And then of course also the work originally from Seattle and now through Juno and then onto BMS with, with Lysacel, which of course is what you've been presenting. I'll give you a big plug because I know you can't talk about some of the data because it's embargoed because you're going to be presenting at ASCO on the Monday. So yes. <laughs> those of you who are interested in hearing much more about this, tune in to ASCO to hear Tanya's present the update on Transcend, which she could only of alludes to today. Mm-hmm. But um, two arms in Transcend that I just want to kind of take apart a little bit. One without the ibrutinib, although nowadays of course saying without ibrutinib, a lot of the patients are getting ibrutinib anyway up until they're collecting the cells. And then the other arm where the ibrutinib the was, was overlapping the collection and, and the process. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about where you are with those?
0: Sure. So uh, the monotherapy arm has obviously completed uh, accrual, and that's the one I'll be discussing at ASCO in great detail. The phase two portion—it's over 100 patients—and um, uh, you know we already published the phase one portion, which was the first 23 patients that shows very high MRD rates, very high remission rates, and in a large majority of patients, long duration of responses as well, especially in people who have achieved undetectable minimal residual disease, whether they're CR or PR, doesn't seem to matter. Um, the other cohort is the combination cohort, where we think that combining with the Ibrutinib, uh, starting two weeks prior to leukophoresis, during manufacturing, during CAR T infusion, and then for up to 90 days after CAR T cells, we've 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 preliminarily seen less CRS um, without affecting you know uh, expansion and and actual outcomes, and and whether or not that will now become more of a standard if we sh- if we continue to show that the responses are good beyond the initial 20 patients that have been reported on, um, the phase two portion of that cohort is also completed. We haven't analyzed the results yet. I I, I think there's 70 plus odd patients. I can't remember exactly. I mean we have. Seen how many total patients there are yet, but that's also coming. And with these two items uh, from this transcend CLL study, I think we'll be able to make a big difference in
1: and these patients. Do you know if the plan from BMS is to file for registration on the basis of
0: that, or do you think they're going to want to do a phase three trial? I think they'll have to do a phase three trial for the FDA, regardless, right? I mean, that's just the nature of the beast, but well, except that which CAR T was not first approved on the basis of phase two. No, 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 I mean, ultimately is well, what ultimately. I meant. Yeah, 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 Ultimately, I think the FDA will demand that, but uh, my sense is that they are gonna go to the FDA this year with okay. the monotherapy okay. data, yeah. Mm-hmm. And
1: of course, the the third talk we had in that session was from Sargil, who unfortunately can't be with us here. But I'll just kind of summarise what he was doing again, from the from the the um, from the UPEN experience again using a And I thought the really intriguing things that Sar was showing was. A, the persistence of the CAR-T. I mean, I think you you know that from your studies, but he showed it very, very well studied there. But also these very deep remissions, and in particular, a very small cohort, but a very important cohort of the frontline treated abritative right. patients only, where 100% of those patients were alive, MRD negative, with kind of prolonged follow-up, suggesting that we get the right patient at the right time with the right combination of agents, then this combination of a BTK inhibitor plus a CAR T could really be transformational in this disease. And perhaps the one setting where you'd believe that being able to get somebody off lifelong BTK inhibitors suddenly makes economic sense to do the CAR T cells right up front. But there are some ethical questions that have to be thought about in terms of how do we select which patients to do that in, right?
0: And so my ideas always are like, I would like to test it earlier in the earlier lines of therapy once we have FDA approval for later lines of therapy, I guess. Um, But picking only Initially, the patients who have high-risk disease, people who have 17P deletion, TP53 mutation, unmutated IGHV complex karyotype, there are a subset of those patients right up front, and we have seen those patients who then progress very quickly on BTK inhibitors and venetoclax, You know, within one year each. So I, I think those are the types of patients I'd like to treat earlier and see if we can get them into a deep remission for a long period of time and give them sort of a new lease on life, if you will, or whatever.
1: Now, in CLL, I mean, we no longer use Uh, Chemoimmunotherapy in the treatment of CLL. But the fact remains is that a large number of the patients we're going to be seeing in the near future who are coming to CAR-T are patients who went through the era of having received it. We know, of course, that treatments, particularly like FCR, can be very immunosuppressive for very long periods of time. You've done a lot of work looking to try to understand what's the right T-cell makeup that's going to be a good patient. The impact that you know even long ago FCR had, have you had a chance to kind of look at that and how in any way that kind of helps us, if you like, think about a patient who's potentially not going to do as well? Or, or do you think are, um, you, you're focusing much more on what we have to do to get there rather than trying to identify who we should not be getting there?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, we we haven't addressed that part yet. I I think the initial challenge for me was to figure out why patients did or did not respond. We uncovered some of that. We also showed some of the resistance that actually is mediated by the tumor cells themselves. I think SARGIL also showed some really interesting data on another subset that contributes to the resistance to CAR T therapy. So that's sort of looking forward at Cleveland Clinic, that's what I'm doing now, building cohort, building a biobank to address exactly those questions that are really important for this field, but also in other heme and solid tumors. Mm -hmm.
1: The other interesting thing, uh, of course, in terms of you thinking about abrutinib is we've certainly seen patients who are no longer, no, their CLL is no longer responding to brutinib, yet it can ten, still maintain that immunomodulatory activity because of course the resistance has appeared within the CLL clone, but it still can have this effect on the, the T cells. I guess lots of us had thought that if, you, if it was, a lot, a lot of it was just removing the immune inhibitory effect of the CLL, but it seems much more complex than that, doesn't it?
2: It seems that way. I think CLL is a very complex disease where the clone that circulates is not exactly the same biologically as the one that sits in what's called the cradle of the CLL in the lymph nodes and possibly the spleen also. And also when you're leaving a look in this, in, in lymph nodes, there's, there's uh, by variability, heterogeneity if you will, of the tumor cells themselves. So. And, and also, we don't really understand what sustains these CLL cells in the lymph node. There's been talk about these nurse-like cells, they probably are the suppressor cells, but how this all happened plays out in the in, in lymph node. In the architecture, that's some of the questions that we're hoping to address in the next few years uh, in, in this disease.
0: And I wonder if that's why Richter's emerges in in, in these patients, in the lymph nodes, and not in the- actually arising in mm -hmm, a protected environment. environment Exactly. Within
1: the lymph node, exactly. Because we were talking about that in the panel discussion, weren't we, about how you do see some Richter's emerging, and Mm -hmm. yet we see persistence of the CAR T. So there must be some way that those Richter precursor cells are in some way protected from those Mm -hmm. CAR T that we know do retain the ability to kill uh, the Richter cells, although not in every case. Well, there you have it. We've discussed uh, what we talked about in the CLL session uh, today. What we're looking forward to is hopefully by next year's meeting, we'll have further progress in knowing where we are with the registrational process uh, for hopefully being able to see the real advance outside the setting of clinical trials by being able to have CAR-T available for our patients with CLL. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next
2: time.